title of my sermon this morning is The Second Confrontation with the Civil and Religious Authorities. Now, you may recall two weeks ago I did a sermon entitled The First Confrontation with the Civil and Religious Authorities. And that sermon covered Acts 4, verses 1 through 31. Here today we see the second confrontation the early church had with the authorities in their day. And this is the history of Christianity. A history of confrontation between Christianity and the state. Why this confrontation? Because as Christians, our allegiance and fealty is always to Christ first, not the state. So when the state makes law or policy or court opinion, contrary to God's law and word, we obey God rather than man. We obey God rather than the state. And what provoked this particular confrontation? What provoked it is found in verses 12 through 16. Verse 12 says, And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people. This was a concern to the civil and religious authorities. The fact that signs and wonders were taking place because they knew that that would bring the allegiance of the people towards the apostles and towards Christ. So that bothered them. Verse 13 says, Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. So even though everybody wasn't becoming Christian, the tenor amongst the community was a high regard for the Christians. They were living lives faithful to Christ. Miracles were taking place, so they were held in high regard. This, too, was a concern to the civil and religious authorities that the people held these Christians in high regard, in high esteem. Verse 14 shows us more of what brought this confrontation about. It says, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. This thing was growing. That bothered the civil and religious authorities of that day, that they keep getting more and more in number. They were concerned about that. Verse 14 says, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Verse 15 and 16 says, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So the sick and the demon-possessed were being healed and delivered. This all added to the people esteeming the Christians and holding them in high regard. This concerned the civil and religious authorities. In fact, verse 16 says, a multitude had gathered in Jerusalem from the outlying areas. Again, they see this thing growing. They see their esteem amongst the people building. And they're worried about that. The civil and religious authorities are concerned about this. All these factors made the Sadducees desirous to suppress and destroy the apostles and their movement. They were jealous of the apostles because of the interest all the people had in them and how they held them in esteem, and they wanted to maintain the status quo. Remember, they had a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. I talked about that in the sermon from two weeks ago in the first confrontation. 
They wanted to maintain the status quo where they ruled the roost. They had a vested interest in maintaining their power and the resultant wealth that came with it. Hence their actions in verses 17 and 18. Read there. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison or the public prison. So what caused this confrontation was the fact that the apostles were being used of God with signs, wonders, miracles, deliverance of demon possession. The people were astounded by this. The Christians were living godly lives. And so they were held in high esteem by the people, and this thing was growing. And because of the vested interest that the civil and religious authorities had in maintaining the status quo, they knew they had to do something with the apostles. And so they arrest them, they put them in prison. Now remember what I told you regarding the Sadducees in the previous sermon, during the first confrontation in chapter 4 that this body possessed both civil and religious authority under Roman rule. Very important to understand. A lot of people think, all oh, these were just religious authorities. The high priest, the temple guard and whatnot, the Sadducees. No, they possessed civil authority. And they possessed religious authority. Before the Romans arrived, the high priest, who was of the Sadducee sect was viewed as the king and priest of Israel. When the Romans took over in good Roman fashion, they kept the existing authority structure in place and used them as a puppet regime. The Romans did this most everywhere, including here in Israel, where they conquered. The Sadducees didn't mind because the Romans would protect them from the people and foreign invaders, and they also would be able to live comfortable lives with the wealth and ease that their position would privilege them with. The Sadducees, therefore, had a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. It was a benefit to them both politically and materially. Many people think these were just religious authorities because they're the temple guard. They're the Sadducees. But the truth is these religious figures possessed civil authority. All scholars are agreed on that. The high priest, prior to the Romans coming, was viewed as both the king and the religious leader in Israel. He possessed authority civilly and religiously. Once the Romans arrived, one scholar I read wrote this. Listen to me now. In New Testament times, the high priest was the chief civil and ecclesiastical head of the political relations with the Roman government. The high priest bought the office from the government and the position was changed every year. Since an ex-high priest kept his rights to the dignity of the office, a kind of oligarchy of high priesthood was established, with many of the privileges being shared by members of his family. A distinguished and wealthy noble group of families emerged and took advantage of society in social, economic, and religious matters. That would be the Sadducees. So these were the bigwigs. Your life was in their hands. In fact, the Sanhedrin was the Senate and Supreme Court of the nation and had jurisdiction in all non-capital cases. When it came to capital offenses, only the Romans could rule on that. 
But everything else, they could. They had authority, civil authority regarding. The Sanhedrin consisted of 70 members plus the high priest. And they had ordered the apostles to no longer speak or teach in the name of Jesus back in chapter 4. Remember that during the first confrontation? They warned them, don't speak in his name any longer. Chapter 4, I believe it's verse 18. And they had not obeyed the Sanhedrin. They continued to teach and preach in the name of Jesus and do signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. And remember what I told you last time also, that in Jewish law, ignorance was a defense in non-capital offenses. So those who violated matters had to be warned first. So back in chapter 4, that was all the Sanhedrin could do was warn them at that point. They wanted to do far more to them, but they couldn't. They had to warn them first. Now they can do far more to the apostles. And this is massive. So the apostles are kept in prison for the night And all the council, 71 strong, would be assembled tomorrow in order to decide the fate of the apostles. But look what happens in verse 19. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So an angel actually opens the prison door and lets them out. And as we'll see, the guards didn't notice any of this. They just walk right out. And notice it says, go, stand in the temple. This verb here in verse 20 means, quite frankly, stand your ground. Hold your ground. And when I saw this in verse 20, it reminded me of John Knox and something he had written. Knox wrote this once. He said, I will keep the ground that God has given me. I will keep the ground that God has given me. And perhaps in his grace, he will ignite me again. But ignite me or not, in his grace, in his power, I will hold the ground. You're left wondering if Knox actually had this passage in mind when he wrote that, when he penned that. Because that's exactly what the angel was telling the apostles to do. Stand your ground, hold your ground, continue to teach Jesus, which was totally against what the civil authorities had told them. This idea that we're always to obey the civil authorities is utter nonsense, and yet it is the prevailing view of most Christian men in America today and throughout the West. And it's been an utter bane and destruction to Western civilization, this unbiblical thought that we should always obey the civil... Here's the angel of the Lord telling them to do exactly opposite of what the civil authorities had told them to do. Verse 21 says, And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. They didn't quiver. They didn't say, oh, maybe that's not a good idea. No, they just did what they knew they needed to do. They went right to the temple in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. So this pomp and circumstance gathering of the big wigs of Israel in Jerusalem, the capital, calls for their prisoners to come. (laughs) And it isn't going to turn out exactly how they thought it would be. 
They're thinking they're it. And look what it says. But when the officers came, verse 22, and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. So they never even knew that the, that the apostles had left. They just walked right out of that prison. They're thinking they're still inside. They unlock the door. They go in. It's empty. A little shocking, right? So look at verse 24. Back at the pomp and circumstance of all the bigwigs. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. <laughs> so I love the terminology there. They wondered what the outcome would be. I can assure you one of the things they were wondering was, how bad is this going to get? <laughs> how did they get out? How is this going to affect the people? This isn't going to look good. I can also assure you that on the other end of the spectrum, they were also wondering, maybe they escaped and they'll just be glad after a night in prison to get out and will never speak in Jesus' name again. I guarantee you that went through their mind. In other words, they were hoping they would be like most American Christians in our day, who love their ease and who, in fact, always listen to and obey the civil and religious authorities. That they would just be glad after a night in jail to get out and they'll just be quiet now. But that thought was short-lived because look what verse 25 says. So one came and told them, while they're sitting there wondering, so one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. <laughs> so this idea that they were like most American Christians, they would just quietly go off and not do that anymore and just be quiet and obey the civil authorities... Yeah, that one out the window right there. That was gone. And you talk about sticking it in the authority's face. But understand, the apostles' motivation was not rebellion for rebellion's sake, like a worldly person would, would be. Rather, the motivation of the apostles was faithfulness to Christ, love for Christ and love for neighbor. That's why they were in the temple that morning teaching the people about Jesus and the things of God. Verse 26, Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. So they come and they gingerly arrest them because of the people and how they might respond if they roughed them up like they would most people. They treat them nicely. They get them behind closed doors. And as we'll see later, they actually beat them behind closed doors. But when the people are around, they want to treat them differently. They treat them a little gingerly here. This simple verse, verse 26, talking about how they feared the people, the magistrates feared the people. This simple verse points to an important tenet of the lesser magistrate doctrine, namely the role of the people. The people play a huge role in their magistrates doing right or not. The people influence their magistrates, greatly influence them, for good or for evil. And this verse speaks to that. They acted without violence because they feared the people. How many of you remember when I preached about John Chrysostom like a 100 years ago? So you should listen to the, my sermon about John Chrysostom. The same thing happened with him with the authorities. The people feared Arrested, the authorities, I should say, feared arresting him 
They didn't like what he was saying because he was taking the authorities of that day to task through his pulpit. But they feared the people. It's an amazing story, a life story, John Chrysostom. So verses 27 and 28, they get the apostles in front of them, and here's what the high priest says. And when they had brought them, the apostles, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Notice they can't even bring themselves to say Jesus' name anymore. Just in this name. You know, he probably spit it out. He's mad. He's bothered. This guy's upsetting the apple cart. He's destroying the status quo, which they have a great vested interest in maintaining. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. That's what they say. And here again, the apostles are before the most powerful men in Judea, 71 strong, their lives are in their hands, and the apostles do not flinch. Here they are again before the most powerful men in Judea, and the apostles do not flinch in their fealty to Christ. It says in verse 29, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. This is reminiscent of what they said during the first confrontation back in chapter 4, verse 19, when they were commanded not to preach in Jesus' name or teach in Jesus' name. Verse 19 of chapter 4, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge. Here in chapter 5, verse 29, they're saying very much the same thing, only more forcefully only much more powerfully and stronger, in a stronger fashion. Here they say, we ought to obey God rather than men. They don't leave it as you should judge. This is the fact. Men are to obey God rather than man when man makes decrees contrary to the decrees of God. Plain and simple. And this is the standard of Christian men for 2,000 years. Namely, When the state commands that which God forbids or forbids that which God commands, we are to obey God rather than man. We are to obey God rather than the state. And here it is heralded right here in the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 29. And this is the history of Christianity, a history of confrontation between Christianity and the state. And why this confrontation? Because as Christians, our allegiance and fealty is always to Christ first, not the state. So when the state makes law or policy or court opinion contrary to God's law and word, we obey God rather than man. We obey God rather than the state. We're not like the rest of the men in our nation who just go off the basis of their whims, of whatever the standard the society has established may be. No, we have an objective standard, the law and word of God that governs our lives. We have an allegiance of fealty to one greater than any civil magistrate on mere planet Earth, namely Christ our Lord. And so we obey him rather than the state. And what is amazing in our day is the conformity to the state by modern Christians. 
It is absolutely, stunningly amazing the conformity of Christian men to the state in our day. Sickening. In fact, I preached a whole sermon on it. Man's most shocking trait, his willingness to conform. And if you've never heard that sermon, you need to go to sermonaudio.com and listen to it. Some say, well, we only disobey when the gospel is not allowed to be preached. That is not true biblically. There are many instances where the gospel isn't even in purview and the people of God obey the Lord rather than man. Over and over again we see that. The standard is not we disobey when the state says we can't preach the gospel. The standard is simply if the state commands that which God forbids or forbids that which God commands, we are to obey God rather than man in any area. You have, of course, the example of the Hebrew midwives. You have the example of Daniel. Here you have the example of the apostles, the apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, making it clear that the authorities wanted to arrest him and he craftily fled down the side of the wall in a basket. It is not just the gospel where we disobey. And it's not just where we have to personally sin where we disobey. We see throughout church history, the people of God, even in modern church history, not only disobeying when it would force them to personally sin, but disobeying on the basis of God's law or word being impugned by the governing authorities. For example, no one told our forebears here in America, our Christian forebears, that they had to own a slave or mistreat a slave, did they? So they didn't have to personally sin. Yet they disobeyed the civil authorities and helped runaway slaves escape, didn't they? During World War II, just in the 1940s, Corey Temboom and other Christian people didn't have to personally sin. They didn't have to mistreat a Jew. They didn't have to imprison a Jew. Yet they helped the Jews. They hid them against the civil authorities' law. Right? This is the history of Christianity. If the state commands that which God forbids or forbids that which God commands, we are to obey God rather than man. It isn't just about we only disobey if we can't preach the gospel or we only disobey if we have to personally sin. That's pietistic rot, which has infected every inch of American Christianity. And we must stand against that filth. And this fealty to Christ is a goodness for other men. The fact that we are willing to disobey the civil authorities. By doing so, we help preserve liberty and righteousness in a nation because we're willing to take upon ourselves the suffering of the state, whatever it dishes out, because of our love and fealty to our Lord. Amen? It's a goodness for individuals. It's a goodness for the nation at large. So look what it says in verses 30 through 32. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. He is not letting this go. He's not dumbing down his message. Him God has exalted. The very one they put to death. God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses. 
to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Amen? Verse 33 says, when they heard this, they were furious. You think? They were furious. These were recalcitrant folk. They weren't bending. They weren't struck by the awe of their pomp and power. They were devout to the Lord. Not only were they teaching His name contrary to their orders, out amongst the people, here they are standing right in front of them and disobeying them and teaching about They're furious. One thing about tyrants, they like to be obeyed. They have no toleration for disobedience. The apostles knew full well what they could do to them. They could do to them what they had done to Christ and delivered them over to the Romans to be executed. They knew that. They could whip them, beat them 39 times. And yet they faithfully stood before this council. They did not act like the weak dog. You know when two dogs meet? Two male dogs meet. There's going to be a fight. How many of you have ever seen this? I've watched it with my own eyes. The weaker dog pees on itself. It's a way of showing, please don't hurt me. It's a way of showing submission to the alpha dog. None of that here with the apostles, is there? Faithfulness to Christ is what they display in the midst of this situation. Faithfulness to our Lord. So they're furious. They're plotting to kill them. The apostles are literally standing there listening to this. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. So there they go. They know their fate is being discussed. Verse 35 says, And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Verse 38 says, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. And that's the whole point he brought up, Judas and Thutis. Was to show, if it's of men, it'll turn to nothing. If it's of God, yeah, you got a problem on your hands. As he says in verse 39, But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Have you ever prayed this? I have. Let them see, O Lord, that they're fighting against you. Remember, Gamaliel was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the minority group that made up the Sanhedrin that the apostles were taken before. Most of it was made up of Sadducees. And here, in Luke's account, a Pharisee named Gamaliel is used of the Lord to quell this hostility towards the apostles and provide more time for the early church to grow before the persecution hardens against them. And it's coming like a freight train. You'll see it in the next few chapters coming up here. 
This reminds you of God's providence regarding Luther and the Reformation. At least it reminds me of it. That Luther would have been put to death had it not been for the martyrdom of John Huss a hundred years earlier. Because when Luther was found to be a notorious heretic, he still had two weeks under Charles V, the emperor's safe conduct. And the Catholic hierarchy said, kill him now, don't let him go back to Wittenberg. Kill him while we have him in our hands. And Charles V responded by saying, I will not blush like Sigismund. He was speaking about the emperor before him a hundred years earlier, Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund, who gave safe conduct to John Huss, and instead of providing him that, had him thrown by the Catholic hierarchy into an awful prison for eight months, given a kangaroo trial, and burnt at the stake in Constance, Germany. If it had not been for the martyrdom of Huss a hundred years earlier, Luther would have been killed and the Reformation very likely crushed before it could even get going. But God in his providence used what our brother John Huss suffered by dying at the stake to preserve Luther's life so that the inner position of a lesser magistrate, namely Frederick the Wise, elector of Saxony, one of seven electors directly under Holy Emperor Charles V, defied Charles. And instead of arresting Luther and handing him over to be put to death, he feigned his abduction and hid him in the Wartburg Castle in Eisenach, Germany, where Luther spent the next year. The world didn't know if he was dead or alive, and he translated the New Testament into the German language, giving the Germanic peoples their first unified language in the history of their peoples. Do you see the providence of God in men's lives? And here... In this situation, you see God's providence for his fledgling early church. That this friend, who isn't even a Christian, is raised up to speak to the council on behalf of the apostles so the church can have time to continue to grow, to put down its roots in the land. God's goodness to us. Amen? And you see it here. The Pharisees were very different than the Sadducees. The Sadducees were happy to be the Romans' lackeys, whereas the Pharisees had far more fealty to God. They were known as the pious ones, or separated ones, separated unto God. That's what the Pharisees were known as. Their doctrine was very different from the Sadducees. As already noted in our last sermon, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And I won't say the joke, don't worry. So whereas the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, the Pharisees did. The Pharisees also looked forward to a personal Messiah in a messianic age, whereas the Sadducees didn't. They also believed in the activity of angels and demons. They held a balance between God's eternal decrees and man's free will. And they tried to live a life of piety to the Lord, all very different than the Sadducees. Gamaliel was either the son or grandson of the renowned Hillel. Hillel was one of the most important figures in Judaism of all time. When you get home, just Google H-I-L-L-E-L. H-I-L-L-E-L. One of the most important figures 
in Judaism of all time. Gamaliel was either his son or his grandson. We can't know for sure because of records at that time. Gamaliel himself was noted among the people. In fact, the Mishnah writes about him and says, quote, Since Rabbi Gamaliel, the elder, died, there has been no more reverence for the law, and purity and abstinence died out at the same time, unquote. This is who God raises up to be the friend of the apostles. I've seen this with my own eyes before, where God raises up friends for us while we're doing right by Him. It's an awesome thing. And most Christians have never experienced it because they never go out and do the work of the ministry. They don't give opportunity for God to show Himself to them. In that way. Understand the Sadducees had to adhere to what the Pharisees taught in order to maintain the allegiance of the populace. That's how well the Pharisees were thought of amongst the people. So when Gamaliel spoke, being held in great esteem, as it says here, with great respect, right? It's held in great respect. What verse was that? Verse 34. So when he spoke, it was huge because he was respected. And this shows how the Lord will raise up friends on our behalf, even those who do not necessarily agree with our Christianity, as was the case with Gamaliel. Gamaliel was able to change the climate of the council, not through authority, which he possessed, but through personal forcefulness and respect for what he represented. Gamaliel was able to change the climate of the council, not through authority he possessed, but through personal forcefulness and respect for what he represented. And this should be the impact of the men of God, of the clergy. And this, this is why our faithfulness to Christ is important. When people see our perseverance and our dogged faithfulness from years of serving him, that carries weight in the hearts and minds of men. That carries weight. Even amongst those who do not know Christ. One of the things that one of the aides said to us, over at the state house was, they're all in a tizzy because they view you as honest men who can't be bought. And that's so unusual, they don't know what to do. Do you see how important it is to be faithful to Christ, to do right by Him? Hugely important. Most Christian men never possess this because they quit or fail in their faithfulness. May we be different. May we be faithful to him. Amen. So verse 40 says, and they agreed with him. He influences them and they agree with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. 
So they departed from the presence of the council, feeling blue, licking their wounds, and writing a blog. Is that what it says? No. It says they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And that is to be the response of all Christian people. When we suffer, we rejoice. There is a goodness to it. Verse 42 says, And daily, in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Pretty astounding, right? We start out our passage with them disobeying the civil and religious authorities. We end our passage with them disobeying the civil and religious authorities. Making Christ first in their life. Amen? And letting the chips fall where they may. That's how we're to live our lives. May we, O Lord, see the magistrates tremble before you as we declare your ways and your thoughts to them. Stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Hallelujah, Father. We love you and we give thanks and praise to you. And we thank you that you have preserved your scriptures down through the years so that we can know your ways and your thoughts. And we just ask and pray, O Lord, that you use what was preached here today for good in the hearts and minds of all who gathered. Lord, I pray that each one would desire to serve you faithfully in the earth. Father, so many in the midst of American Christianity are bored with their Christianity. And it's only because they don't live as Christians. And Lord, when men live as Christians, wow, things are different. And Lord, I just ask and pray that you would arouse the church out of its slumber, out of its sleep, that you would grant repentance to the church in the West. Lord, that you would even use those among us here towards that end to declare the truth of your word, to be faithful to you in deed and in word. Lord, be glorified, I ask and pray. May we, O Lord, see the magistrates tremble before you as we declare your ways and your thoughts to them. And I ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You could be seated. And we're going to take communion at this time. And you can take communion with us as long as you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take communion as um, the Lord's table is only for believers to observe. Thank you. So, how many of you know who James White is? Have any of you ever heard of the book, The King James Only Debate? Okay, it's a book that I always recommend. It's a phenomenal work. He does a tremendous job. Um, One book I can cross off my list to write about because his book is that good. So James White was all opposed to interposition and abolition two years ago. 
And about two months ago, he went before the Phoenix Common Council and gave a three-minute speech for interposition and abolition on behalf of the preborn. And he did a phenomenal job. He did a tremendous job. He's very well-spoken. And um, you can see that three-minute video on uh, the Internet. I recommend that you look at it. But this is what's growing across the nation, where even scholars are coming out of their little dopey ivory towers and beginning to realize we must speak to the magistrates. Our form of Christianity is dopey, stupid, worthless. And it needs to change. This whole idea from the pietists that we should have nothing to do with those matters, men are seeing the consequence of such ill thought. Christian men are seeing that, and they're realizing that was a mistake. And we must speak to the magistrates, just as all Christian men did for nearly 2,000 years till the pietists came along with their dopey thinking. And I'm being kind when I say dopey. Here at the Lord's table, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread... Paul says, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So we should have been put to death for our sins, but Christ died in our place. He died in our stead so that if we will believe in him, God will forgive us of our sins and we obtain right standing with the Father. And this time at his table reminds us of that fact. There's only two elements at his table, the fruit of the vine representing his shed blood, the bread representing his body. There's nothing else at his table. Signifying to us it's through Christ alone whereby we're accepted of God. The good works that we do, the holy living that we display, those things are the result or the evidence or the fruit of our saving faith in Christ. We don't do those things to try and obtain God's acceptance. Rather, we do them because we have obtained his acceptance. This is a great salvation. And we must make it known to men. We should not hide our light under a bushel. We should tell others about Jesus. You young people who've been raised in Christian homes, you have no idea how bleak and black it is to most human beings on the planet. They have no hope. Zero. They need to hear about Christ. They need to hear this good news that they can be changed by the power of his Holy Spirit, become a totally new creature. We should not keep that to ourselves. We should not think, well, they've all heard and they've all hated. Nope, they haven't all heard and they haven't all hated. We have to be faithful. We are fishers of men. Cast out your bait, see if there's a bite. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in you. and We thank you for this time at your table. We ask that you use it for good in our lives, that we would think well on this great salvation, that while we were yet your enemies, you loved us. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you regenerated us, made us new creatures in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you 
that you convicted us by your Holy Spirit, that we saw the awfulness of our sin and fled to the refuge that Jesus is. And Lord, we just ask and pray that we would be your ambassadors in the earth, making your holy law and this great salvation known to men. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. Praise to you, O God. Blessing and honor to you, Lord. Blessed is your holy name, Father. Father, we do thank you for the beauty of this day, as Mike mentioned in his prayer. And Lord, I just ask and pray that you would take the rest of this day and use it for a time of closeness with family and of rest. And renew us, strengthen us, that we might faithfully serve you in this week to come. All the things we petitioned you about, O God, during the prayer time, again, O Lord, we beseech you. May we hear of your answers of prayer in each of those situations, I pray, O God. Lord, be glorified through each of our lives, I pray. Be glorified in each of our homes, I pray. Use each one here in their workplace to be a bright light in a dark nation. May we see revival, reformation, May we see men come to know you. May they see the emptiness of the material wealth of America, the bankruptcy of what they tell us we should live for and strive for. May men see how empty and worthless it is. May they desire you. And may we be faithful to proclaim you. And I ask these things in Jesus' holy name. May you be praised. Amen. Hallelujah. God bless you.